Hello, fellow planeswalkers, and welcome to Into the Ether Vortex. My name's Ninja Boy, your guide into all the different ways you can enjoy Magic the Gathering and how they all come together into something wild, wacky, and a little bit magical. So this episode, I'm going to do something a little bit different. Uh, normally up to this date, I've been talking about my actual play experience with Magic, maybe doing some deck techs. Um, but this week, I'm actually going to be answering a question I found that's commonly asked on Reddit, uh, partly so that I'll be able to have a link to this episode to link whenever someone has a question about it. Um, also, I've kind of been swamped with other podcast projects I've been working on. Uh, but yeah, I mean, these topics do genuinely interest me, and they are part of what fascinates me about the game and game design at large, which is part of what I want to cover on this podcast, aside from you know just how my I've been playing Magic. Uh, so the question that comes up pretty often on the subreddit, um, our Magic TCG, uh, is you know what's the deal with fetch lands? Obviously, um, they're very expensive, and you know there's been a lot of hullabaloo about them not being reprinted. We're supposed to be getting one later this year. Uh, the the Secret Layer Ultimate Edition that came out is super super overpriced and really isn't going to meaningfully affect you know demand or the supply, which means that the price is not going to go down so much. So what's the deal with Fetchlands? Why is everyone raising a hullabaloo about them? So first off, the Fetchlands. Fetchlands are lands, right? The lands are the cards that go into our deck that generate the mana. Fetchlands actually don't generate their own mana. What they do is they allow you to sacrifice them to search for a land from your library for a basic land type. Uh, kind of similar in standard to the card Fabled Passage, uh, which basically does the same thing, but it, the Fabled Passage explicitly looks for a basic land card, whereas Fetchlands look for cards that have basic land card types. There's a slight distinction there um you know specifically and there are other cards that also do fetching but when people say fetch land sword hand they refer to the five ally color lands from the onslaught block as well as the five enemy colored lands from zendikar um so flooded strand is the white blue fetch land polluted delta is black blue Bloodstained Mire is black-red, Wooded Foothills is red-green, Windswept Heath for green-right, uh, Marsh Flats for white-black, Sculling Tarn is blue-red, Verdant Catacomb is black-green, Arid Mesa red-white, and Misty Rainforest green-blue. The text on them specifically reads, and I'll use Misty Rainforest as an example, you may pay one life and sacrifice this card in order to search for one of the to search for uh, a forest or a mountain and place it onto the battlefield. So these lands are in huge demand. And obviously, again, the secondary market kind of reflects that. Uh, a single copy of the enemy Fetz lands, uh, so, you know, Mars Flats, um, you know, Scalding Tarn, Verdant Catacomb, Arid Mesa, and Misty Rainforest, um, those have only been reprinted. In, they were originally printed in the Zendikar block, and then again in the supplemental product, Mo Modern Masters 2017, as well as the aforementioned limited run Secret Lair Ultimate Edition. These range from $36 up to $70 per for a single card. Uh, the allied colored Fletchlands have had a little bit more reprinting. They range from $15 to $25, were originally printed in Onslaught, um, and then in both Cons of Tarkir and Fate Reforged. Um, so the original deck lists uh, of the modern formats, you know, in the modern format, the most most deck lists will require either six to twelve fetch lands in their mana basis, um, and sometimes the total cost can account for half the deck, uh, half the deck cost. You know, in terms of dollar amounts, which is again only for six to twelve cards, and these are just you know land mana cards that don't actually necessarily proactively win you the game. 
So again, why are they in such demand? Why do they command such a high price? And why do people want them reprinted? I think to answer this question, you need to dig into one of the major tensions within Magic deck building. So Taibo and the Fetchlands, we'll get back to them in a second. So at its core, Magic and most games, uh, but Magic especially is a game of resources. The cards you have in your hand, those are a resource. The cards in your library are a resource. And when you play you know, cards that let you draw more cards, you're gaining an advantage, you know, a card advantage by seeing more cards that you can play. Your life can be a resource, you know, black especially likes to use card effects that, you know, pay some life to be able to do a thing. Um, you know, and of course the mana you have available at any given point in the game is a resource you use to cast other spells. Other trading card games use play with these resources in different ways. Uh, Hearthstone and Legends of Runeterra, they use a mana system. It's not tied specifically to lands. Instead, each turn you will automatically get one mana, right? So on turn one, you'll always have one mana. Turn two, you'll always have two mana, and so on and so forth. Pokemon, the trading card game, uses energy cards that are shuffled into your deck, and as you draw them, you may play one mana per turn onto a creature and then or Pokemon and then use that Pokemon's ability if you have the correct mana applied to that Pokemon. So that's kind of the limiting factor, and you have to manage which Pokemon you put your energy cards on. Yu-Gi-Oh! doesn't really have a resource system, to be honest, uh, and that is what imposes many limits on that. That the lack of a limit on you know what you can do in the game leads to Yu-Gi-Oh! having a very combo-centric meta game, right? It's because you lack the resources that will limit what you're able to do that you're basically able to fire off in like one or two turns, which is kind of the stereotype of of Yu-Gi-Oh! games. So. Magic's mana system, right, is tied predominantly to land cards that you play normally only once per turn, and you are inherently limited to what you can accomplish in that turn based on the mana you have available to you. If you play a land on turn one, you can play a one mana spell. If you can play a land on turn two, after that, then you can pay two mana's worth of spell or activate abilities that total worth two mana or some combination of casting a spell and activating an ability. Uh, generally, stuff that you know costs more mana is a more powerful than stuff that costs less mana, right? An eight mana spell is by far more powerful than a one mana spell. Even if you just compare the creatures you can get for paying one mana, uh, those are generally going to be smaller than creatures you pay you get paying four mana, right? Assuming that there are no special abilities, which again the designers of the game apply some mana co- mana value to, right? A card that you know, on turn that has like a 2-2 creature, right, is worth something. And then a 2-2 creature that will also draw you a card or generate additional mana, that will be worth an an extra uh, more mana down the line, assuming, you know, the colors stay the same. Um, So yeah, so you can break down actually many gameplay styles of Magic the Gathering to how the deck utilizes mana. Aggro decks, right? They try to use mana super efficiently in the first couple turns of the game by casting creatures every turn or spells to deal damage every turn, and you try to defeat the opponent before the more powerful cards further up, you know, in later turns that the opponents have access to can be used, right? You want to kill them before they can do that. Control decks, on the other hand, play the opposite game where they try to use mana efficiently by making the mana the opponents use essentially ineffective, right? If you play, if I play a three mana spell and then you counter it with a two mana spell, essentially you've made me use three mana for nothing, right? Uh, And you've only used two mana to be able to do that, which leaves you maybe one additional mana or something to maybe use another card effect or something to gain incremental advantage over time controlling the game, right? So it's a matter of controlling how you use your mana, uh, and even using converting your mana as one resource into another resource, in this case, maybe you're drawing cards using that mana, right? So that's mana, again, is the resource here you're utilizing in the control deck. 
uh, ramp decks, you know, they try to break the symmetry of the one mana per turn by, you know, okay, I'll cast a spell that lets me get additional lands onto my battlefield uh, so that I can you know, cast more powerful things. If I have four mana on turn three, you play a three mana spell, I'm playing a four mana spell, I'm doing more powerful things than you that over time will beat you, right? Of course, you're giving up your early turns to ramp into that, so you have to basically try to not get killed before you're able to play off the big mana things. Um, and then combo decks, you know, are often revolve around using some weird combination of things in order to break the mana system by, you know, creating some infinite amount of mana or using your mana to create infinite power or something like that. Um, so in deck construction, what this means, uh, you know, is that you need to dedicate a certain percentage of your lands, you know, in a 60 card deck, that's anywhere from 18 to 28 lands. In a 40 card deck, either six, anywhere from 16 to 18 lands. In order to make sure you have the right probability each turn that you have enough mana at a certain point in the game. I'm not going to get into the math here, but you can look up Frank Carson and his hypergeometric calculator to basically figure out like, okay, on turn one, if I want to be able to have one mana, at least one mana on turn one, how many lands am I required to have in my deck so that, you know, from the seven I draw in my opening hand, plus if I'm going to play the one I draw, what's the probability I'll have at least one mana uh, to play? On turn two, how many lands do I need to be able to have two mana and three, uh, three mana on turn three and so on and so forth, right? Um, on the flip side, right, if you if you want to insert that the mana, you will have enough mana, you can obviously put, you know, 40 cards in a, you know, 60 card deck or land cards, but you're basically giving up uh, the ability and spells to actually do things uh, in exchange for that security of mana, right? So that's the first tension of, of, of building a deck, right? How much mana versus how much action or gas, as some people call it, you have, right? And finding that balance is you know, one of the first steps on, on, on becoming an efficient deck builder. So... The fact that lands are a part of your deck instead of a separate component, as with other card games, does lead to an in increased variance, which, again, is a whole other topic of conversation about the role of variance and game design and magic specifically and, and what it offers. You know, people say, like, okay, if you have the chance to maybe come back and beat someone better than you, that makes new players more engaged and also gives, you know, players who might be a little bit salty an out that say, oh, I wasn't bad at this game. I just happened to, you know, get mana screwed or mana flooded, right? Give them an out or a John or an excuse, um, but you know that's a whole other episode. Uh, check out Mark Rosewater's uh, Drive to Work podcast on uh, you know talking about uh, probability and variance in Magic. So the other main component, though, I need to discuss when it comes to this tension of deck building between spells and land is you know unlike the mana system of games like Hearthstone or Legends of the Runeterra, not all mana is created equally. And that's not to say some mana is better than others. Um, it just means that they're different. You, you've probably heard about the color pie, but as a refresher, all cards in Magic, um, well, most cards in Magic, aside from the colorless ones, are assigned to one or more colors as determined by the color of mana necessary to cast that particular spell. A zombie spell, for example, requires black mana, an owl spell requires green mana, a goblin requires blue, ma red mana, uh, morphic requires blue mana, and so on and so forth. Um, the five basic man and the five basic land types, you know, plains, islands, swamp, mountain, forest, all produce one of those five colors of mana. 
Now, beyond the flavorful associations, the mechanical color pie of mana has the important function of separating out the different functions of gameplay. Blue, which is you know more about planning ahead, is the card you use blue mana in order to cast card spells that let you draw cards, let you counter cards, and so on. Uh, green is focused on strong creatures that you know are more powerful and have more toughness. So you know you pay what you pay two mana um, in blue, you'll get a small creature. You pay two mana in green, you'll get a bigger creature than what you did in blue. Um, red is all about dealing damage, and so you know it ends up you know doing a lot of direct damage spells with its stuff, and so on and so forth. White and black have their own slices of the color pie as well. Now, imagine for a second, you know, for your experienced magic players, that you cast any spell using any color of magic. Um, we do have cards that allow you to do this. This is, you know, what Chromatic Lantern does. It turns all mana into any color of mana, which functionally means you can cast, um, you know, cards with any color of mana. Uh, so that the reason that that's a pretty powerful effect is if you think about it, uh, using the same mana to cast card draw spells as, you know, big creature spells, as well as go white token spells, as well as guest kill spells, as well as direct damage spells, that would basically mean that you know, the uniqueness of each color is lost. It would bleed into each other. And as a result, decks in general and deck construction would lean more toward the most purely powerful stuff on a per mana basis, right? You know, you could like, you could, you could, where before you say, okay, I'm playing blue, so I don't really have to think about, you know, playing red. Now it's like, oh, I guess since I can cast, you know, both a draw spell and the red spell and a damage spell, you know, using the same mana, I just need to figure out if drawing or, you know, or dealing damage is more powerful and, and, you know, figure that out. And, you know, before you'd have to say, okay, well, I have to choose one or the other. Now you don't. You can play both the, the draw spell and the damage spell in the same deck. Uh, the color intensity of mana is kind of, you know, a lever that design uses to try to do this. Um, you know, the more colored pips, so for example, a card that is, um, you know, one in the green is is kind of light restriction on the green. You still need green mana, but only one green mana. A card that is green, green, green needs three forests in order to cast it. And so that is, you know, definitely you need to have a lot more green cards in or forests in your deck in order to be able to cast that green 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 card as opposed to if you are playing maybe like a green blue deck and you want to play green um you know for example wrath of god the classic destroy all creature spell requires two white mana as well as two generic mana to be cast if you have three swamps and one plains you know you can't even cast it even if you have four spell four mana available so this is generally why in card design, cards that are you know two or three colors uh, are more powerful than, than cards that are one color. Um, you know the classic example is a grizzly bear is a uh, two power two toughness creature that costs one generic mana and one green mana, so two mana total. Watts Wolf uh, is a creature card that is also two mana, but because not only does it require green mana, it also requires exactly white mana, not just any color, right? The color restriction is more restricted. It can only be played in decks that have both green and white, right? Not all the decks. So as a result, it's allowed to be a little bit more powerful. It has three power and three toughness compared to the two, two that a bear would be, you know, one in the green. So in general, then, you know, if you think about it, how can you get around this restriction, right? Like, uh, one thing you can do, right, is to play card lands that produce more than one color of mana. Um, you know, uh, 
the, the this is why cards that that are multicolor that lands that are multicolor are you know pretty powerful. In fact, the original dual lands such as Volcanic Island, which can tap for red or blue with no limitations, are that's basically strictly better than any island or, or mountain you can play. Right? Why play an island if you can play a volcanic island? Then you can get access to red mana on top of the blue mana. Um, so more more recent card designs are offset this power level, um, and this, the power level is kind of indicated not only by the uh, you know the rarity of the volcanic island and and similar you know a um, alpha beta dual lands, um, but you know just by the power level of the cards themselves. So recent card designs offset this power by having some sort of drawback or limit. The most common uh, is that, you know, for example, the Guild Gates from Ravnica, those tap for both, you know, two colors of mana, but they enter the battlefield tapped. So, you know, let's say you play a Mountain on turn one and then a Guild Gate on turn two. You know, on turn two, you only have one untapped land, so you can only play a one mana spell, whereas if you had played, you know, a, an Island and then a, and a Mountain, you could play a two mana spell on turn two. Right, so you can do more powerful things sooner, but you're you know, again, this is the next trade off, right? Uh, you're basically trading off the uh, flexibility of the color of mana uh, with the speed of the color of mana. So, you know, as an example, you know, let's say you want to cast Shock, right? It's a one mana spell um, that requires exactly one red mana. On turn two, you want to cast Sprite, Dra Sprite Dragon. It's a two mana spell that requires exactly one red and one blue mana. On and you want to cast it on turn two, and then on turn three, let's say you're playing in, in standard or, or limited, you want to cast a Lore Skull Codal. Uh, it's a three mana spell that requires one generic mana, one blue mana, and one green mana, and you want to cast it on turn three. So if you're playing with only basic lands, that means you must play exactly one mountain on turn one a island on turn two, and then a forest on turn three. The odds of getting exactly those three lands in order in your opening hands and first couple of draws, as well as having the Sock, Sprite Dragon, and Lord's Kodal in your hand, not very likely. Um, that said, if you know if you are able to pay, let's say you know, so, uh, uh, the AB dual, the Alpha Beta dual lands, again, tap for two mana, right? Um, let's say you play the red-blue land, turn one, untapped, you can cast the Sock. Uh, on turn two, you have the option of either the blue-green land or the red-green land, or technically also the red-blue land, uh, and then you'll be able to cast Sprite Dragon. So instead of needing, you know, you have one option and then... Uh, and then exactly one other option now, you know, if you played the red-blue land, you could play, you know, you could play uh, that. Same, they say you have that one option. Then on turn three, instead of needing exactly one other card, you now have three other potential cards you could be using, which means that, but you're also not giving up the chance to be able to cast other spells because then on turn three, right, if you just need a generic mana and you have, you know, the red, the blue source from the red blue land you play turn one, and then the green source from the turn you land you play turn two, which also let you cast a red blue spell on turn two, then you're basically able to, you know, play Lord's Kodal on curve. Again, most uh, you know most modern lands that produce more than one color of mana have some sort of drawback, usually entering the battlefield tapped to offset this benefit. So you know, as magic is a game, as again, as magic is a game of resource management, the management, uh, the resource you are managing is not only the quantity of mana you have at a certain point in time, but also the color type of mana you have available at that point of time, and then you have to make the call necessary about you know if you're going to be able to play the powerful spells that require more mana and more colors at the right time. So, for example, consider a monocolored deck, right? 60 cards, red deck wins, 25 lands, or all mountains, right? 
um, you don't really need to think about what color mana you have available. There's only one color, red. All you have to do is care about how much mana you have available in your hand. If you have too much, if you have too little, for the record, 25 lands in a mono red deck is probably a little too many. Um, but as we know before, different colors do different things differently, right? Um, and they all have their strengths and weaknesses. Red will deal damage really well early on, but then get overwhelmed in the late game. So, you know, playing a mono red deck, you're going to lose if you don't win by turn four or five. Now consider a, a two-colored deck, right? Let's say, you know, it's a red-blue deck. You plan on going aggressive still with your aggressive red creatures, but you're backing it up with blue counter spells, blue card draw spells to let you last a little bit longer, right? You're reducing the hyper-focus on red strengths, but you're introducing the strengths of blue as well. Now you're introducing maybe blue has some weaknesses, but red may be able to cover for those weaknesses and vice versa, right? Now they both still may have some weaknesses that other colors can explain, but they're lesser compared to, you know, by themselves. Stronger together, weaker by yourself. Um, and you have, you know, you have two-fifths of the color pie the workers, so you have more options on what you can do. Uh, and you have access to the more powerful cards that require both red and blue mana. However, in order to fuel those options, you need to make sure you not only have the now not only the correct quantity of mana per turn, but the correct uh, color of mana per turn, right? So let's say you you play a turn one mountain to play a red creature, right? And then in your hand you have a, a counter spell that requires two blue mana, right? On turn two. Well, if you play a island on turn two, you're not going to be able to cast uh, the island, uh, you're not going to be able to cast the counter spell on turn two that requires two blue mana because you already played one red mana on turn one, right? So you can't, so that limits your options on what you can do. Um, you could offset it with a dual land, um, so you could play maybe a red-blue dual land on turn one, but if that ends the battlefield tapped, you can't do your turn one play, but at the very least on turn two, you have the option of, you know, if you play an island, you know, either blue-red or blue-blue uh, blue mana available for whatever it is you might want to do. So, you know, the problems and benefits of adding these additional colors of mana go up as you add the additional, you know, up to the full five colors. A rainbow deck, as they call it, with all five colors could theoretically do anything in magic. It has access to all spells available, but only if you're drawing the correct mana at the right time. And as you dilute your mana base, splitting up, up among the five colors, uh, you're not you're less likely to be able to draw the right color at the right time. If you have 25 lands in your 20, 60 card deck and you used only basic lands, no dual lands, whenever you draw a land, you're only one in five of getting the specific color you might need at that point in time. You might, you know, uh, you could use the dual lands, um, you know, so that you're, um, you know, you can get red or blue or green or black, but again, you're playing your three mana stuff on turn four, four mana stuff on turn five, and your opponent is playing five mana on turn five or more if they've ramped. So yeah, that's the trade-off you're making. Uh, in limited, you know, the math works out where generally you want at least eight or nine sources of a given color from most of the time. That's where the 17 land rule of thumb comes from. Uh, again, it's it partly about getting the right quantity of mana at the right point of time, but it's also about getting the right colors of mana at the right point of time. If you're trying to play a three-color deck uh, with 17 lands and you're going something like 665, you know, the total or... Yeah, 665 totals up to 17. You're not going to always have the right mana at the right time. So if you're splashing, for example, a third color, like you, you're mostly red-blue, but you have a really powerful green spell you want to be able to cast, you know, you want, the math works out, you want at least three color sources of that third color in order to cast it. So maybe that works out to something like, um, you know, 
one dual land of the between maybe red and green and then two forests and you give up two islands. You're a little bit less likely to be able to cast the blue spells on time, but because the power level of the card you're splashing is so high, you're worth it's worth you taking that risk. So in my opinion, this is one of the central tensions of magic and the mana system. Uh, you know, you know that saying when if you want something done, if you want it done good, fast, or cheap, you'll need to pick only two of the three. Uh, when choosing colors for your deck, you basically are making the choice between being consistent color-wise, being on curve, or having flexibility, right? So if you want to make sure you're on curve and you have the right and and that you have the right colors, you're not going to have the flexibility of the color pie. You'll be limited to one, maybe two colors, and you just have to deal and accept their weaknesses and limited game options. On the other hand, if you want to be on curve, but you also want a wide number of options in terms of what you can able to do with regards to the color pie, you're not going to have a consistent mana base. You'll end up with some islands when you want swamps or plains when you want mountains. You'll have the right number of lands perhaps, but you won't have the right colors in the right place because you've diluted your mana base into the different colors. Now, if you want the option to do anything in magic and you also want to have a consistent mana base uh, in terms of getting the right color at the right time, you're going to have to play enter the battlefield tap dual lands that put you at a turn behind your opponent uh, assuming they're not doing the same thing so you're giving up the speed of your mana base of your mana uh, base instead of uh the consistency or the flexibility so uh you know this central tenet of magic deck building is what fascinates me so much about the endless choices uh you know of something that's as simple as deck building right and choosing the colors of what deck you want to have uh, managing the pros and cons of adding additional colors against having an odd curve deck against having the right colors at the right time that pleases the inner melvin in me all right so it's been 25 minutes and i've barely mentioned the fetch lands at all um why do they how do they factor into this well the one last puzzle that you want i need to mention is those dual lands right so as i said most dual lands enter the battlefield tapped as an offset for having the power to produce two or more colors of mana uh, some do enter untapped uh, but under specific circumstances pain lands such as seven reef enter the, enter the battlefield untapped they can produce one colorless mana right anytime you want it but if you wanted to produce colored mana you have to pay one life every time you tap it um so that's a drawback um the battle lands from battle for zendikar enter tapped unless you have two or more basic lands in play so basically only into the late game on the flip side fast lands are the opposite where they enter untapped if you have two or fewer basic lands in play or lands in play but they'll enter tapped otherwise uh, the most notable of these dual lands are the Sock Lands uh, from Ravnica. So these enter the battlefield tapped unless you pay two mana, socking yourself in, in sort, uh, and when they enter the battlefield, in which case they will enter untapped. Also very significant, they have the basic land types on there, the plains, island, swamp, mountain, forest. Uh, Steam Vents is a island mountain, and it's able to tap for red and blue, and this doesn't mean, again, that they are a basic land card, but they have the basic land types, which means that Fetch Lands, uh, well, we'll get to those in a second, can fetch them. So again, the Fetch Lands don't produce mana on themselves, but they do let you search for a land with a basic land type. As we just said, the Sock Lands have the basic land types, even if they're not basic lands themselves. In Legacy and Vintage, those original dual lands I mentioned, like such as Volcanic Island, also have the basic land types, and without the downside of entering the battlefield tapped, uh, that means that the Fetch Lands can search for them from your library and put them in play. So I think this help, really help would be to have a real-life example of the impact Fetchlands can have on your mana base. 
I pulled up the mana base from MTG Goldfish of the Soul Tide Control deck from Modern that it's heavily biased toward blue. Cryptic Command is a counter spell plus other stuff that costs one generic mana and then three blue mana. Uh, normally, in this case, without dual lands, it'll be very rare to play anything except blue, maybe one other color spotlight, but you want to be primarily blue in the deck that runs Cryptic Command. So, the mana base of the Soltai Control deck runs 10 fetches. It runs 2 Flooded Strands, which fetches planes and islands, though planes aren't necessary in this deck, just the island part is relevant. 4 Misty Rainforest, which fetches islands and forests, and 2 Polluted Deltas, which fetches um, swamps and islands. Uh, so when you count up the other cards, I believe it was 15 other cards in the mana base... Uh, you end up with, you know, all of the cards have basic land types. Some of these are dual lands or even tri lands from the recent Ikoria set. Um, so in 15 cards, you have 12 swamps, 6 forests, and 4 swamps. That is uh, 22 different lands. If they were it, In order to have the same number of color sources, you need to have 22 basic lands that do the same thing. Uh, so, tw- you know, this is all fits within 15 lands total. However, you know, again, you know, Misty Rainforest, can search up uh, an island or forest. So, you know, in this case, uh, it's able, a Misty Rainforest can fetch up a Breeding Pool, which is a island forest. It can fetch up a Mystic Sanctuary, which is an island. A Polluted Delta, which is a uh, island swamp. Um, it can fetch up Plain Forests, Plain Islands. It can fetch up Watery Grave, which is a uh, swamp, uh, a swamp, Oh, sorry, Polluted Delta can't be fetched, but Water Gate, which is a swamp for island, and then Zagoth Trium, which is a uh, swamp island forest. Um, you know, so, you know, Mystery Rainforest functionally is a three-color land. Same with Flooded Strand and same with Polluted Delta. So, um, you know, these 10 cards uh, basically count as three-color lands, um, but and again, not only of the lands that they have. Again, uh, Flooded Strand can technically fetch also planes. There are no planes in the deck, but because it can fetch up, say, the Watery Grave, which is a blue-black land, the blue-white fetch can also now tap for functionally black mana as well by fetching Watery Grave. So when you consider this, fetch lands acting as tricolor lands adds, you know, basically more cards, more counts to the uh, to the mana counts, right? So within the 25 lands of the total mana base, if you count, you know, the fetch lands as the three basic land types, then you have 22 swamps, 16 forests, and 14 sw- and 14 swamps. So that's something like 52 uh, basic lands would be necessary in order to equal the na- same number of mana sources you have in this deck for each color. Um, you know, in a 60 card deck, that would basically mean you could only play uh, eight land, eight, eight spells uh, to have the same consistency of mana. So, you know, being able to fit that into 25 lands only allows for all of the other cards that you want to have. Um, you know, uh, you know, the flexibility, you know, that by, this flexibility bypasses the limitation we had noted before. That if you're trying to fit in more colors in your deck, you're going to have to either play a slower mana base, um, or you're going to have to pay reduce the number of colors in your deck, or you simply include more lands in your deck at the cost of you know proactive spells um, that you have in your deck. Flex land again, fetch lands again get around this get around this limitation. In fact, remember earlier when I said if you had access to you know what would happen if you could cast uh, spells with whatever mana you wanted, um, it would just turn kind of into good stuff decks. Well, you know 
if shortly after the ally fetch lands were printed in cons of Tarkir, um, alongside another cycle of dual lands, not the sock lands, another dual dual land that had the basic land types that could be fetched, that standard meta was basically full of four power good stuff decks where they just pulled you know the best guard card draw decks, the best removal decks, the best creatures. They put them all together into one deck. Uh, I believe it was called Moist Jund, right? Jund being the red, black, green color mana base plus blue moist. Um, so it's the ridiculously consistent mana base to play all of these spells from all the different colors kind of broke the color pie. And that might be why Wizards is kind of reluctant to print fetch lands in a standard legal set. It really limits the amount of fetchable lands that they can put, lest the standard environment gets really toxic that way. So obviously for me, the biggest benefit of fetches is that it has this ability to fit multiple mana sources into a limited number of cards because of the flexibility, bypassing and and kind of getting around that, you know, the limit of the deck building tension between colored mana, the ability of spells and consistency of mana and playing stuff on curve and all that. How, that doesn't even scratch the circle. Well, that's a big part of why Fetch Lands are big, but that, that's not even everything about Fetch Lands. There are a lot of other synergies with other cards that players have found with Fetch Lands over the years. I'll just name off some of them. Uh, one card, Fatal Push, uh, will destroy a creature with total mana cost of two or less by default, right, for two mana. Not bad, but if a permanent left the battlefield that turn, it can actually destroy a card with a more powerful creature that has a total mana cost of four or less. Well, Fetches leave the battlefield when they sacrifice themselves to fetch a card, so you can basically trigger your Fatal Puss to be more powerful and take out more powerful stuff by cracking your Fetch land. Um, you know, some cards like Tarmogorf or Grim Lavamancer, they care about having cards in the graveyard. You know, Tarmogorf gets bigger than more different land types that are in the graveyard. This is the, one of the more consistent ways to get lands in there in the graveyard. And then uh, Grim Lavamancer can exile cards from your graveyard in order to deal damage to an opponent. Uh, having your fetches in the graveyard is a way for Grim Lavamancer to be able to feel its, its ability. Um, the card Death Shadow uh, gets more powerful the less life you have. I, it's actually actually um, a 13-13, but gets minus max minus x equal to your life total. So you have to be below 13 land, uh, 13 life. And if that's the case, it'll only be, you know, if it's tw- if you have, you have 12 life, uh, it'll be 1-1. One, one. So if you get down to 3 life, on the other hand, then it'll be a 10-10, right? For like, I believe, 1 or 2 mana, or 2 or 3 mana. So um, because fetch lands pay life in order to sacrifice themselves to fetch a card, and sock lands also sock you uh, to get your life total down, you can get your land total down really quickly, enabling that shadow to actually be a deck in the format. Uh, the upcoming Zendikar set uh, will likely have the landfall mechanic returning. Uh, that triggers an effect whenever a land enters the battlefield under your control. Um, Again, you can figure this at once, uh, at at will, uh, by even on your opponent's turn when you normally can't play lands by activating your fetch land, sacrificing it, and putting a land from your battlefield from your grave land library into the battlefield. Even on your turn, you could trigger landfall effects twice by playing your lantern, you know, triggering the effect, and then a fetch land you had in play, cracking it, uh, having it leave the battlefield, and then a card from your library enters the battlefield um, on your side, so that triggers landfall twice. Um, uh, in Legacy, Brainstorm is a card that lets you draw cards from the top of your library and then place cards from your hand onto the top of your library. So, you know, it's a way to filter the cards that are coming up, pick the most powerful thing available to you. But then obviously you're stuck with, you know, cards that may not be the most powerful, which is why you might have put them back. Well, with Fetch Lands, when you search your library for a land to put on the battlefield, you have to shuffle your deck afterwards because you saw the cards in your deck and what order they're going to be in. That pick, takes the cards that you didn't really want to play immediately, you know, shuffle them into the library and let something more powerful hopefully percolate up to the top of your deck. Um, 
So yeah, I mean, those are so many different applications with fetch plans. The most commonly quoted one I found, aside from the mana fixing thing, is deck thinning. So while I said that in your 60 card Soltai control deck, you have 25 lands, really 10 of those lands, the 10 fetch lands, are just ways to get to your other lands. There are tutors for your lands. And so uh, functionally, you know, you can... Think about removing those from your deck, basically, once you can get to the land that you need, right? You're not getting ahead on mana. You're just replacing the land you had on play with one in your deck. Essentially, you go from, you know, let's say turn one, you fetch, right? So you had 60 cards. You drew seven. So you're at 53 cards in your deck. You play a fetch land. You crack it. And then suddenly you go from 53 cards in your deck down to 52 cards in your deck, one in your graveyard, six in your hand. Well, now you're at 52 cards. So, you know, one if you need to draw one specific card out of your library, one out of 52 is a little bit better than one out of 53. If you fetch enough times over the game, then you'll eventually reduce, you know, reduce the numerator in that probability down significantly enough, supposedly, that you'll be able to increase the chances of drawing exactly what it is you need, right? This is why when, in general, when you're building a deck, if the 60 card is the minimum, you generally want to play exactly 60 cards. You generally don't want to go much over. Otherwise, the whole case for like, oh, you can just put more lands in your deck to make your deck more consistent. You're diluting your deck and making it so you're less likely to draw the good cards. That's another deck building design thing. But um, suffice to say here, right, uh, you're functionally looking through a thinner deck when you fetch your fetch lands out of your deck. It's a non-zero chance. I think it's a little bit overblown how popular the saying is that, oh, it thins your deck. That's why you need to play it. But I can't deny that if you do fetch enough, you will significantly affect your chances to get what you need. So uh, we are just under 40 minutes uh, of me just rambling on about fetchless. Uh, I think that's enough rambling about the design of fetches and why they're in such demand. Obviously, many players, myself included, hopes to see them reprinted in mass soon, uh, especially the enemy fetches. We're supposedly, again, getting them sometime later this year. That's hopefully not just another secret layer, not in the collector boosters that we're getting out. Um, it's not going to be in the Zendikar Rising set. They've already announced that, but we'll see. Maybe Commander Legends down the line will have it. Uh, keep our eyes Peeled. In the meantime, I'm looking forward to Mark Rosewater's uh, virtual San Diego Comic-Con panel tomorrow, uh, as of the time this episode is coming out, which is on Saturday. He'll be going over more stuff about Zendikar Rising, uh, which will not be Festlands, but my fingers are crossed for a four or five color Omnath locus of whatever. In any case, this casting of Pod is slowly coming to its resolution. What did you think of this episode where I dove more into the mechanics and tensions and game design of magic deck building from that game design perspective? Uh, let me know if you want to hear more episodes like this or if you want to just hear me go back to the doing deck techs and, uh, you know, what is, you know, what has my gameplay experience been with the different sets so far? Uh, let me know on Twitter at EtherVortexPod or via email at IntoTheEtherVortex at gmail.com. You can find Into the Ether Vortex on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. And you can leave a review on any of those podcast stores or on PodChaser.com. Uh, it really helps us out. Link in the show notes. My architect with all of my deck lists is linked in the show notes with the username NinjaBoy, boy with an I. Um, I also normally will stream Magic Arena most Friday nights at NinjaBoy333 on Twitch. Um... So yeah, hopefully you can catch me on there later than, later tonight. Uh, the intro and outro music is provided by Kevin MacLeod. Find his stuff at incompetech.filmmusic.io. Editing and production is provided by Ninja Boy Media. I cast pod every second and fourth Friday of the month. But until next time, may your lands be plentiful, but not too plentiful. Though hopefully the fast lands become plentiful. Anyway, bye guys. Mm-hmm.